0: Greetings, Ray's community. Brent coming in live from Rhode Island with my guest, June Bradham, who is joining us from Saluda, North Carolina. June is the principal of CDM, which stands for Change, Develop, Move. And June was first mentioned uh, by our prior guest, Brian O'Rourke, who runs advancement at Clemson University. And Brian was raving about June so much, we just had to invite her to the show. So welcome, June. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're going to get into uh, how your path uh, with Brian uh, crossed and some of the work that you all did together, uh, and then I certainly want to cover what you're up to now. But one of my favorite um, questions, given the audience here, which tends to be uh, higher education fundraising professionals, alumni development professionals from around the country and increasingly around the world. Uh, I love just knowing about your own higher education journey. So why don't you think about June in uh, June of your senior year of high school? Oh. Who was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was she thinking about? And what letter to Columbia College?
1: Well, it was really interesting. My, you know, my parents. Uh, I guess for, for better or worse, were the really influencers about where I went to school. And uh, for whatever reason, they said I could go to any women's college in the country. But they thought that women's colleges had such a strong leadership component for young women that they thought that would be best for me. Um, and probably because I like to have a really good time. And and they probably thought that would, you know, something a little more uh, controlled would be a good idea, too. Um, and so I decided I went I visited several. My grandmother actually had was in the first gra- graduating class of Converse and my great great uncles had founded Walford College. So those independent schools um, were attractive. But when I visited Columbia College, I just felt like it had um, the right thing for me at that time. And in my junior year, I transferred to the University of Georgia and uh, really liked that too, but ended up coming back to Columbia College and finishing.
0: And, it was founded as a women's liberal arts college and uh, actually became co-educational in 2020. So very recent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just tell me about the experience and did it deliver on what your parents hoped you would experience? You know, it really did. Um, so when I was there, it was, it was all women.
1: Um, but you crossed pat, you were, cross-pollinated with all of their friends at all the various universities. So you were frequently on a campus of another uh, type. Um, and I felt that I grew as a person, it was small enough and intimate enough, but the professors were longtime, steeped people in their, in their field. Um, and so I felt like I got a great deal out of it. And then I later actually, um, went on the board of the college and was, uh, was vice chair of the board, uh, for a period of time and served on the executive committee. And so I saw a different side, um, of the school and, you know, as with most very small liberal arts schools and particularly women's colleges, they suffered Uh, they've really struggled. And um, so, you know, I really admired the work of of the faculty and the staff and the president to try to right size things.
0: And I think they're finding their path. And so tell me about your um, post-college career path. And when did the world of philanthropy hit your radar?
1: Well, this was uh, interesting to me, at least. My um, my mother had been very involved in civic things, so from childhood, I went to board meetings with her um, and would, you know, sit back with a coloring book and, you know, kind of groan and kick my feet a little bit. But um, but I did see leadership in action with my with a female leader. Um, so I think. You know, somehow that was just in my DNA. Um, My dad uh, was also um, civic, but he traveled a lot. Um, And then um, my first job, I I thought I wanted to save the world, right? I was a 60s kid. And so I was a sociology, psychology major. So I thought I could make it through programming and changing the world inside a not-for-profit. And I pretty quickly understood that it's very difficult to change value systems. And so I thought it might be easier. And one of the things they needed most was money. Um, And so I flipped uh, over into a development position. And then I really grew when I hit Hilton Head Hospital. So I was um, hired as uh, director of public relations and VP of marketing for the hospital. And fairly shortly after that, They didn't have a development staff. Um, And shortly after that, I was made executive of the foundation and I just fell right into the honeypot. That was was my sweet spot. And so we had a board that was so fantastic. They were retired executives from everywhere in the country and they were fairly young retirees. And so they knew what to do. They knew the they
0: knew the game plan. So I really learned development from them. Um, well, I know you've done a lot of thinking about boards and writing and speaking on boards. What was the game plan? What is the game plan? What did they know to do that maybe otherwise you wouldn't have been as, um, uh, you know, that wouldn't have been as intuitive or come naturally? Well, they knew how to lead. Um, number one, uh, they
1: understood their role that was separate from the governing board. The foundation board and the governing board had very similar types of people, but they all knew how to lead and they understood where their where their lane was. Um, and so when, when a vision was presented to them, they would jump on it. And my job really was traffic cop um, in the beginning, just trying to help them have the most pleasant experience they could and come back with you know, as as much as they could to meet our goals. And the first campaign I ever did, um, and I had never done one. Um, so I was smart enough, and they well, frankly, they were smart enough to tell me to go get a consultant. (laughs) And so we brought in a consultant and we did a feasibility study and then we had them lay out the game plan. And what was great for me was I had the opportunity to interface with the entire community, the entire staff the board. And, and therefore I was there for retention too. I was there long enough to stick with those wonderful donors um, that made whatever project coming down the pike, if it was, if it was exciting enough and it was really going to make a difference, you didn't have to convince them. They were leaders. Uh, And it's rare. I will say that, that boards totally like that,
0: Um, are rare. I think you do find them more in higher ed and and in healthcare. Talk to me about excitement because, you know, one of the amazing things about philanthropy, uh, and we've talked about this a fair amount, is unlike other markets, if you will, uh, where things just have a price, right? You want to buy a car, this is what it costs. You want a new TV, this is what it costs. You want to be philanthropic? Well, you could do a buck a year, you could do $100 million uh, and everything in between, um, or even beyond that. And so what role does excitement play? And did you have experiences where maybe somebody was coming to the table thinking, yeah, I could do 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 or a million. And then you see them get excited and all of a sudden zeros are added. I mean, and it didn't have to be in that example, but throughout your career, just what does it mean? Uh, What can the impact of excitement be? And do you have any examples that come to mind?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, You know, I would say... Without excitement, it's just going to be a campaign. It's going to be a kick and drag, slug and and take one step uh, against the other. And sometimes loyal people will just do it because they're loyal. But this just happened this last week when I was with a client and the board chair. I had a meeting with the president of the, of the college. Um, we had been working closely with the staff and the board chair came in. And so I, we ended up in our conversation, we started out with, you know, this is how the, we see the campaign rolling, usually the technology sorts of things. And I realized that she, that she was going to do it because she was that kind of leader. So I stepped back a little bit and talked about her vision. What did she see? And so I would say that in a general statement, but it happens every time. Good leaders and uh, philanthropists, even at whatever level, if you will let them talk a little bit, they will tell you what excites them. And so, for her, it was what is the president's real village, you know vision. He's he's been here a long time. He's you know like most college presidents, we're going to see retirements uh, coming up rapidly yeah. now. In what is he going to be? And so fortunately we had had a conversation with him and we're able to share just a little bit. And then her tone and her body language totally changed. So our next step was let's get her together with the present. Let's make sure they're in sync so that she can iterate what that is. Um, So, you know, that's an example of somebody who is also a corporate person. And so she will, I'm pretty sure what she was thinking when she was interviewed for the feasibility study and what she's going to end up doing and getting her corporation to do will be different because of the vision that she's seeing that's more broad and not so just concrete building, right? It's got a lot more to it. Um, They'll get their building. But what will happen to that building, what will happen to the community is what got her juices
0: flowing. I love it. Help me understand then your transition to founding. I mean, as a fellow entrepreneur in the space to deciding, you know what, I I need to to hang my own shingle. I believe the year was 1987 when you did that, June. And if you had seen me in 1987, 88, 89 or 90, when I was between six and 10, Mm -hmm. and you said, hey, little Brent, what's your favorite song? I would have said. Walk Like an Egyptian which was the number one song uh, in yeah. the country in 1987
1: <laughs> I as are the you're,
0: age of my children sure <laughs> <laughs> so you're hanging the shingle walk like an egyptian is playing while you're while you're setting up shop what led you to do that and tell me about some of those early moments well what really led me to do that i had um, i had a relationship with
1: a marketing firm that we were using at, in my previous job And when I told him that I was going to leave, I was going to Charleston, um, but that he was fine. His contract was going to be fine. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know, but I'm not going inside another institution. I had a great opportunity. I had a great thing, but I wanted to be uh, more, I I needed a little bit more flexibility and freedom. And and I thought I had some ideas. Um, And so he said, why don't you start a company within my company? So this is hysterical because I put in $600, he put in $400, and we started the firm. <laughs> and uh, I bought that partnership out in a year and uh, for quite a bit more than than the $600 initial investment. But what it was really was um, there was an opportunity. I had uh, paved uh, the way for healthcare fundraising in the state in a way that Really wasn't happening. There were only two other foundations in the state at that time, and so it was a great It's it's like the where's the gap, right? Where's the gap? What gap can I fill? Well, what I could fill was sharing with others what I had learned to do, and uh, intuitively, uh, and with this business partner, he was one of the best strategists I've ever met. So he really taught me a lot about strategy and how to listen and how to put the pieces together. So I think learning and doing. And so I would find myself, I was so excited about it. Um, I got one client and then I got two and then I got four and then I got six and it was all word of mouth. But again, I'm not so sure it was me as much as it was, there was a a wide open hole for somebody to go through. So 32 years later, um, you know, and you've heard Brian talk about it. I mean, at one point we had uh, consult 25 consultants working all over the country and it was a blast. Um, uh, so,
0: you know, just step out there. I mean, it was a, it was a real risk. And there had to be ups and downs. I'm sure the economy changed, you know, during various cycles. Uh, any uh, real, real high points or real low points that you're comfortable sharing? Yeah. Well, one of the things that was very interesting to
1: me was that, of course, the 87 crisis was kind of the first one. I mean, not 87, uh, like the 80, in the uh, 90s when we had the financial crisis. Um, that was the worst um, uh, of them. But what's interesting with consulting firms, you generally have. Ah, uh, clients. They're signed on, and typically they're there for like eighteen months or so. Um, and so, what happened was, our clients who stuck with what they were doing were very successful, even in the financial crisis. But what happened is, a lot of people, of course, wouldn't make the decision to go. They were really nervous about that. So we had a, a real downturn um, for a while, and so we started doing. Uh, research. So we did um, some very high, I had two PhDs on my staff at that time and we started with research where we could bring leaders together and teach them around this research. And so we had the senior leaders of colleges and universities and, and hospitals. And, and if they came, then their board chair could come. And so that while we had to put money into that, um, we got great returns. And so um, I haven't done much advertising. It's all been word of mouth over the years. And this last downturn, um, I, you know, we just fortunately we got ahead of it. And um, but it's I feel it. And I think you just have to. Have to work with people to stay the course, um, because funding will still happen. You've seen this even COVID. Um, we thought COVID was going to take us down. But really, we've been busier during COVID than any other time and a lot because we can handle twice as many clients
0: not having to be on a plane. I want to to talk more about that because I think there are huge implications for our sector. But before I do, uh, when we hosted Brian O'Rourke on our podcast, he was talking about the Mint Ask and uh, that you brought the science and the art. What is the Mint Ask and how can that be applied uh, to our uh, colleagues here in the education sector primarily? Well, this is, a, um, and Brian
1: says he still uses this. So it's, it's really uh, interesting to me that he who is raising billions is using our, our little menace tool that we developed. Essentially what we did was we uh, did a research project. This is one of the things that we uh, looked at what drives success, uh, and in this case, in university and hospitals is what we were looking at. What drives success in a fundraising organization? And, what the, and from a data-driven standpoint, regression analysis, correlation, and uh, probability were applied to these. The number one uh, predictor of success is the amount of giving by the governing board of the organization. Secondarily, the foundation board. And we know that's an issue with publicly appointed boards, right? But it doesn't have to be, and I have another whole theory on that that we can't get into now. So what we did was we said, well, if that is true, why do they do that? Why do these governing boards who are highly successful, why do they give to the extent that they do? And so that's when um, I started interviewing high-value board members from around the country, which led to the book, What Nonprofit Boards Want Out of Their Experience. And so out of what they told us and what we were looking at, at the time, the, n- the name of the company was Corporate Development, M-I-N-T, as opposed to Change, Develop, Move. And so everything was branded with Mint. And so we developed this mint Ask manual, and we actually did it the night before a board retreat when we were on site with clients, and there were five of us there to run it. And we developed this, this process of what are you looking for? What, what do you need to know? And what do your if you're going to use volunteers or your staff, what do they need to know? And so we did it from more of a, a qualitative standpoint. And we walked through an outline of what do you need to know first? What's going to be our our first step? I mean it's it's you know and then what are we going to do when we get there if, if it all derails and we go you know so the the what if scenarios we played. So we just developed this and we used it with all of our clients because, and I will tell you why, one client, um, they had this great group of leaders that had a great project. They, they weren't getting the gifts. They were coming back and the gifts weren't coming, the gift officers. And I
0: said, so what? Were, getting, were they getting no's or were they just not getting a yes? I mean, what they was They were happening? not getting a yes. They were not getting no's, but it was just, it just, they just kept putting them off.
1: And what I finally realized was is they didn't know how to tell the story. They didn't know how to tell the case. So that was the fulcrum of the whole thing was we think everybody understands what you're raising money for. They don't. Sometimes the staff doesn't understand it and they haven't had to practice telling that story. So the, the real crossroads of the men ask is can you tell your story? And can you tell it in a way that your listener wants to hear it? So we talked about how to evaluate people's personas, what their body language is, what their response is. And so you had to practice it. And so we were we were the ones to practice. I played the donor or Brian would play the donor and we would play the various staff or the various volunteers. And it was hysterically funny, but it was also kind of painful. And, <laughs> and but at the end of the rainbow, they could walk out, the door. They couldn't go ask if they couldn't tell the story. And we just we just said, don't, don't even go, it's better if you don't go or take somebody with you who can.
0: It sounds like role-playing is a huge part of what you believe in. I'm curious, based on your perspective, knowing lots of fundraising leaders, is role-playing common in our sector? And I would say to our audience, if you're listening and you have uh, a, a leader or you really believe in or have benefited from role-playing, Tell me because I don't think we've talked about that very much. But also, if you don't think there's enough of it, let me know that too, and I'll turn it to you, June. Where are we in role playing, and um, how might somebody start working it into their training and development? Well, you know, there are college presidents. Let's
1: just talk about college presidents on that for a minute. There are college presidents who are wonderfully—they're articulate, they're passionate, they're exciting, they have a vision. They can—they can. They can that that vision can come across and i hope this i mean i didn't do a scientific survey on this but i would guess that that's about 20 percent and too many are um come across as uh either a finance person or an academic and within about seven minutes you're rolling your eyes and so what I've what does that done... look
0: like? Because I've not
1: been in the yes. room where somebody because... is rolling their eyes, bored with like... the
0: president. Um, and, and, and what is a before and after? I mean, you don't, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but but give me like, this is what you might get that's overly academic or just overly, I don't yeah. know, whatever, not engaging. And then the after that maybe you've seen folks learn or, or be coached to deliver. Like... So I would say,
1: you know, we have this wonderful university and we graduate the best students anywhere in the country. And our faculty, mm, they love those students. And what we're finding is, you know, those English majors, they are are—they They're writing books. They're doing just great. And oh, and you know, those that that new technology center we have can't get them out of there. They're over there all the time. And so it's no, 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 no. It's just drone on instead of, you know what? We've just come off of the most wonderful time working with our faculty across the board. And we have a, we have a really exciting opportunity for every student on this campus to have a, the future they want. And we've taught, we figured out how to do that. And one of the things that we know is that so many of them have obligations beyond what happens in their work life. And so we're going to have a child care center right here on our campus. And it's going to go 24 hours so that no matter what their obligations are, we're going to take care of their families so that they can learn. What do you think about
0: that? I'm ready, June. Where, where can I send the check? right? I mean, it's, who are you talking for to? Everybody, you know, most of you are listening, but we do record these on video. We share them on YouTube. Go back to that part on YouTube and just see how June leaned in, even through zoom made direct eye contact and the, you know, the body language and the, the verbiage are, are equally important.
1: Yeah. It's so simple, really you know, who do you want to have for dinner? I mean, who are you going to ask for dinner at your house and sit around the table for three hours? Because the conversation is so interesting. It's the same
0: thing. So is this, um, I have said at times when people, you know, they say, hey, what, what would you recommend to leaders that are starting a company or um, what classes could I take? And I did a group improv in high school and I did a bunch of, you know, speech stuff and acting and direct. I, I feel like a lot of this is acting. It is. And so if you've got a president that is more academic, that is not the, the persona you would cast for the role, have you seen people put on that game face that you just put on and, and learn how to sort of be someone that maybe they naturally aren't. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can
1: happen. Uh, And they may not be an actor, but they, if you can find the spot where they get excited, you ignite that spot in them. And the way we've done it is first I generally, or one of our consultants works with the leader. And let's just say, let's just stick with presidents right now, because I think they need this as much as anybody. And so we will talk with them, first listen, and then try to get them open. And what I usually say, to be perfectly honest, do you really need the money? I mean, if you really need the money, I think we can get you there. But we're really going to have to have you play a number one role here. Are you willing to do that? And so we work on the case in a way, and that's the worst part of all campaigning is the bloody case for support. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> sometimes, you know, and get it excited. Doing? And why don't we do it? Because you have to have a story. You got to get it down to something. You can't just say, if you love us, give us money, right? That's what we do a lot. Um, What's the best case for support you've ever been around? Oh, well, actually, I wish I could say it was with the university, but it was actually with the hospital system and they were building a new cancer center. And I said, we can't just be yet another building. And so we brought every senior leader, meaning physicians, lab people, nurses, patients. We had this round table that we met once a week. I mean, once a morning. For like six weeks, and I hammered them about the vision. We know what's going in it. Everybody gets it. You're going to have radiation, you're going to have chemotherapy, you're going to have diagnostics, you're going to have wellness. But why are you here? And they came back with, "We want to close our doors in 10 years.": Sorry pretty, pretty clear. That was such an easy campaign because all of them had they they made this up. It wasn't me. They they did it. We just hammered away at them on the so what question until they finally threw out their hands and were so sick of us they could just you know wanted to kick us out of there and say it's just a cancer center. You know, we just, but they it was them. So they had the passion. They could tell that story. Any one of them. Any one of them could tell that story afterwards. So it's it's really a matter of getting down to the so what question.
0: So now, June, you have so you, grown up and your career has been centered in the low country, which maybe not everybody knows. What is the low country? And then I've got a follow up question. Yeah. OK. So the low country is if you think about Charleston,
1: Hilton Head, Beaufort, that 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 southernmost um eastern seaboard of South Carolina, although our company has worked in uh, 17 states in three countries. Um, so we've, you know, but, but that's home. And I was actually born in Charleston. And so um, I, when I came back home, I wanted to come back to the low Country.
0: So when you think about the fact that you've been in all those countries doing work, you've been in, in all uh, regions of the country doing work. What is unique to the low country? Like if I were going to be a fundraiser in the low country, like Brian, who who, made his move from the Northeast, if I were to do that, or if somebody were to contrast, especially with hospitals that are maybe more regionally oriented, um, what is unique, if anything, about low country fundraising compared to the rest of the country?
1: Well, I'm not so sure it's all that different because people are people everywhere and they're yeah. wonderful people everywhere. However, what's happened in the low country of South Carolina is um, probably one out of ten people that you meet today uh, spent their career somewhere else in the world. And je- we're, we're just finding that um, many very generous, very successful people, I think, frankly, COVID had a lot to do with it It was happening before then, but they wanted a quality of life. They wanted a small, beautiful city. It's very European. If you haven't been to Charleston, Uh, there's a historic part, their beaches, um, their marshes, their boats, their tennis tournaments there. You know, we're not much of a Well, the Citadel wouldn't like me if I said this. We're not much of a football town, uh, a little bit of a basketball town, but we're really—it's really a participant town, is what I call it. So, if you want to get in the water, or go for a walk, um, or do something civic, you can do it. Um, It's not much of a spectator town, I would say, and uh, and anymore. And you know, uh, you know, I found I found uh, old guard. South Carolinians, much like um, Europeans, in that um, the idea of a lot of generosity, without it, with the exception of a few families, was kind of foreign. You know, you put your money in your homes and your kids and their education, and and your fox hunting on the (laughs) on the side. But now, what we have is a very different population, and so you have to be a lot more. Uh, sophisticated and willing to listen there. And two, I will tell you that our philanthropists are also making up the type of philosophy that you see with Melinda Gates um, and Mackenzie Scott, where they're taking on their own thing and driving it. We have, you know, venture capital people who now are in social venture capital, a group of young retirees who are doing that and they're driving their own train. Um, so the not for profits so have better be ready.
0: They, they've got to, they've got to have a pretty good story. Tell me about your favorite gift you've ever been a part of that you either raised or that you witnessed. Um, what stands out?
1: Yeah, this is my favorite story and it's, it's actually an old story, but I, to this day, I've never experienced anything quite like this. So a a woman was co-chairing a a, a campaign that we were doing. And her husband and her uh, brother-in-law and her son were the owners. um, It was still a privately held company at that time of a very significant privately held company. And so I went through with her, mid-ask that you ask about. And I said, because she was willing to go ask them for the gift, but she didn't want to do it at home over breakfast. She wanted to formally make, she said, I want to do it right. I want to make sure we get what we want. So we went through many as she got down how she wanted to tell the story. So you're basically coaching the, so the, mean, mother, the mother, the wife, and the sister-in-law of these people. I mean, this was hysterical. Would
0: go and ask their... Her
1: husband. She was going to formally make an appointment with her husband and the son and the three of them. She made an appointment, so all three of them were, uh, were waiting on us at their office. And I met with her that morning and picked her up, and I said, I mean, you sure you didn't talk with Bobby about this over breakfast? And she said, I'm not doing that, I'm doing this right. I said, okay. And it was a big ask. It was it was a, a, an ask that was gonna make them sit back a little. And she had not prepped them for the amount of the ask. And we walked in and it was so funny. So the three of them were sitting side by side. They're big men. All three of them sort of scrunched up together on this sofa across from us. And interestingly, our chairs, I'm sure it wasn't planned We're higher than the sofa. <laughs> so from a body language standpoint, it really gave her the platform of power, even though she was, uh, she was very powerful, but she didn't use her power in anything but a positive way. And so she said, I so appreciate this appointment this morning. This is very important to me. And she launched into the story and she stopped and she said, do you have any questions? They asked their questions. She answered them. And then she said, and so I would like for you to consider a gift of, and she said the amount. What was the amount June? You got to tell us. It was 10 million, which at that point, what year? Oh my gosh. This was like
0: 1990.
1: And and it was only It was only like a, I don't remember, 25 million campaign or something. It wasn't it wasn't something huge.
0: And they I mean they all went like this. That's basically 21 million dollars in today's dollars. That's, that's right. And so and this was so, a, I mean this, was, so a Bob, community, yeah, so this Bob, was a community campaign. This
1: wasn't, you know, some big university. It's, and I mean they their
0: heads judged and they didn't say a word. So so basically and, uh, Mom shows up to the office and there's really no preparation and she just goes for it. She goes for it, but she did what she was supposed
1: to do. She did exactly what she was trained to do and she did it beautifully. And she also didn't say a word. She held, she held, and that's hard, right? It's hard to let people think about what they're going to do. And so they looked at each other and said, "Thank you so much for this. We are going to give it serious consideration, and we will uh, we will get in touch with you this afternoon." <laughs> and of course, this afternoon they called her and told her that, of course, they would do the gift. And they said, "Don't ever do that again." <laughs> <laughs> so it was a great story. I mean, it was you know, it was just a small campaign, but she was a brave leader, and it would be. That same story could be told if it had been a $5 billion campaign. I find it just as easy to raise a billion as it is to raise 10 million.
0: Words to live by right there. Um, Great story. I love it. And uh, I guess when you think about the importance of, you know, the gift officer, I mean, is there something to learn of, you know, when should we be training the influencer to make the ask versus the president or the gift officer being the star of the show.
1: Yeah. You know, I know that in universities and, and I understand totally the reason why it's easier just to, as we'd say, get it done. Right. We've built enough of a relationship. We think we know what they care about and you can make the ask, and it. It, it so often works. Um, But I think an influencer is always better, you know. Um, So is the gift officer having dinner with that donor or is the influencer having dinner with that donor? And I, you know, I was just at dinner with two personal friends, but they're both philanthropists. And during the dinner, there was uh, something in our community that has come up that's going to be a big new thing. And one of them looked at the other one and said, I know you're looking into this. When you decide what you're going to do, let me know. And that happens all the time. We know that happens. And so why not try to involve that without it? You know, so I'm, I'm not a big fan of these advisory boards that so many colleges have unless they're done right. You know, true leaders don't want to be on a, on a board that they have no influence on. There's no decision making. You know, they're eating peas and carrots and listening to a Talking Head, and so now if it's different, it's a different story. So if you're going to have them, use them, use yeah, them
0: no. more in a better Ta- way. You know, time is way too valuable than to sit on a board that really they don't want you to make decisions, um, especially given the audience that usually would be targeted. Um,
1: well, as a matter of fact, in the book I wrote, um, so I had, I had done, um, I had, I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, uh, with all the conversations we had, the number one predictor of success with their happiness with being on a board was um, if they had an opportunity on a smaller group to really make a difference. And generally strategic planning was kind of it. But what they said loud and clear, Loud and clear. Don't ask me to be on a board that is not going to have any teeth to it or any any uh, ability to make a decision. And so, you know, I've found with your audience, it's with the advisory boards, which of course they can't all be go- governing boards. And so, you got to make it feel like they're a governing board. You got to give them real decisions to make, um, and that's hard. It's hard, to, you know. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Governance is Leadership that was written by Dick Chate out of out of Harvard. And what he talks about is the bell curve of involvement. And when you look at your influencers and what kind of relationship you're going to be having with them, um, uh, look at where their involvement is at the moment. Is it at a high point or a low point? And then you can build it up to a high point for the donor. Um, and figure out how to make that happen. I didn't mean to give you too long an answer there, but.
0: No, it's uh, it's it's all uh, good and, and appreciate the perspective. You just mentioned um, the author from Harvard and I know that you did go. Uh, and, and in fact, as I was working on the business plan for this company, I was finishing my MBA at Harvard and we were there at the same time, in fact. Oh, uh, yeah. So tell me about your decision to, um, it looks like a couple of times, but, but more recently the certificate for, uh, called governing for nonprofit excellence, Mm -hmm. what led you to take that course? And would you recommend it to others who are thinking about continuing ed around philanthropy?
1: I really would. Um, I, because this was not, this was not an easy week. I mean, it was, it was intense. And so it was everything from uh, finance to dynamics um, to models. You know, one of the things that I learned there that would be really great for uh, a lot of independent schools, colleges, and universities is how shared governance is beginning to come in. Um, Whereas maybe there, you can't have one president. Maybe you have to have two because they're two different roles that need to be played. We sort of see that with the provost and the presidents. And so, um, and to be perfectly honest, for me, it was the networking. I mean, just the people from around the world that were in that, that we were there together for two weeks. Um, And so uh, I got to know people and I could call and ask them, what did they think about a certain thing that was going on? And because they're the people in the role, not the staff handling them, that's who knows what to do, right? I mean, they know what they want to do because they roll their eyes outside the room. Sometimes they roll their eyes. Like, I can't believe they really want me to do that. Right. I'm going to sit here and be nice. One of my best friends always said, beware of the smiling CEO. So I learned a lot there about the perfunctory things and how to, how to do critical planning. But it was, frankly, it was just listening to others' experiences um, and, and how they handle things and how they grew things and how they changed and how they quit things too.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. And it's always interesting to hear the different flavors. There's so many ways to do continuing education, a week long intensive, uh, masters, uh, you know, other uh, curriculum out there as well. Uh, and and I don't believe that we've hosted anybody who's attended uh, that as part of the social enterprise initiative at Harvard business school. So, um, being conscious of time, one of the big themes on the podcast, June, and the reason that you were invited was Brian cited you as one of his mentors. And, um, I've got to ask you, uh, you know, who, um, who do you think of when I ask you who are your mentors? Uh, you've already mentioned your mother and the coloring book in the back of civic leadership uh, sessions. Um, but who else uh, helped you along your path? Uh, and then I also want to know some of the folks that you've maybe been able to build a mentoring relationship with uh, as well.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the mentors for me started uh, well, certainly um, having a, an early partner who encouraged me to start this. Um, there was a woman who co-chaired a campaign with me. She was actually younger. It was my first campaign. And her husband was chairman of the board and she was chairing the campaign. And we became friends. But I watched her um, in her her leadership. She was young and she she became the first woman president of United Way of America without a private plane. Uh, Just kind of, and she was from a a small town in South Carolina in, in the low country, as a matter of fact. And so I watched her. She's now the CEO of pharmaceutical company grow along the way. And so she was one who served on significant boards, of course. And um, so she would bring me along. I mean, she introduced me um, to people. And so, you know, many of the the early contracts that we got were because of her endorsement. Um, and I could I could continue, uh, you know, with with people along the way. In terms of those that I mentor, I'm not a fan of formal mentoring programs. I've tried. I've tried to be a part of those. But I find that we have to find our own mentees. They have to uh, identify themselves. And then I'm happy to talk with anybody. But if they don't want to put, you know, if they really don't want to put in the work, and they really don't want to do something with their lives, I ain't got time to Stick with them. And so I find that those, uh, and it doesn't mean work, it just means they, they reach out, they call back. Um, and there's one uh, woman that every time I'm with her and she makes a talk, she swears that she wouldn't, you know, she'd still be uh, flipping burgers at McDonald's or something, which of course is not true um, because of the mentorship. But, you know, there was a, a young woman. I actually kind of took a risk. I I knew the president of her company, and I felt like, who, who is this? I can't. I shouldn't say it out loud. Yeah, um, I will tell you offline. You would know. Right, and right. um, but but I actually used um, an article that I'd written as an excuse to meet with the president. And in the conversation, I said, "You know, you have, you have a woman who is the face of your company around the country." And I don't think she feels very valued. So I would just I would just think about that because I think you've really got a gem here. And he got a little miffed with me. Like, why are you in my business? But what was interesting is two days later, he called her in and she has grown and blossomed. But she's still active in the business world. And I, I wouldn't want to pretend Taking credit, credit for that. Um, but there's so many. Susan Sullivan lived across the street from me and had three babies. And, you know, she ended up a single mom with those three babies. And I brought her into our company and said, listen, this is what we need done. You think you can do that? And she said, I'll figure it out. And I said, I know you will. And now she has, you know, she had a senior level position in development she has gone on now to do her own consulting firm. Um, uh, you know, um, I guess uh, Paige Bullington at, at Blackboard would probably say um, that there's some mentorship. She was actually an intern in our office in college. She was the best intern I ever had.
0: Why? What um, can because, every intern listening learn? Oh from boy,
1: I'll tell you. Well, she got it done. Uh, you know, she didn't come come in waiting on us to put something on her desk every morning. We had a project she dug in, she asked questions. She would take assignments off of that and just figure it out. She just went out there and got it and came back. And so, boy, when she was ready to, um, to finish her graduate program, uh, there was a, a client that I had and they had an opening. And I said, let's put her in here because she won't find anybody any better. And so she got that job and then she grew to others. And we constantly, you know, we would get together maybe once every two months or so or call and talk. And, and, you know, she ended up com- becoming my boss at one time. I don't we, think you know, I knew that, but for I love that
0: story. So I, 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 yeah, I contracted with, with she Black- is the president, and uh, Paige is the president and general manager of Blackwood Healthcare Solutions and Blackwood Foundation Solutions, uh, from the- intern to June's boss.
1: Yeah, which is just one of my favorite stories. And she, by the way, she was a great boss, and I
0: tried to be a good employee. <laughs> love to hear that. Love it. Love it. Well, June, thank you uh, so much for for coming thank on you. and for sharing your journey. I mean, to run uh, you know, CDM for uh, over 35 years now, uh, and and to bring uh, the passion and energy uh, that is clearly still a big part of your um, your day to day is just it's inspiring. Uh, I've been working on this company for about 11 years, and I love meeting people who've been uh, you know doing it longer than I have because uh, you know it gives me gives me hope that that I can stay as uh, passionate and, and energized as as you are today.
1: Well, congratulations on your success, and I'm so pleased that we've been able to meet in person. I know I've known who you are for a long time, but I didn't know
0: you, so thank you so much for this. No, no doubt, and I, uh, I'm really hopeful that I have future Low Country trips, uh, you know, on the docket as, as travel uh, uh, resumes a bit here in 2022, uh, okay. and so if you'd be up for it, I'd, I'd love to get together Absolutely. when I'm down. Absolutely.
1: Well, we'll get you some shrimp and grits and crab cakes.
0: <laughs> I will have to be, uh, I, I will have to be on a, um, uh, special diet regimen or exercise regimen for that trip for sure. But, um, uh, June, thank you so much. And we'll send your best to, uh, to Brian. I know he'll get a and uh, look to any of our audience, uh, listening as well. If you have recommendations for guests, uh, folks that have made a big impact in your career, the way that June has, uh, in Brian O'Rourke, uh, O'Rourke's please, uh, shoot me an email, Brent at Evertrue.com or drop me a note on LinkedIn because we're always looking for people like June um, who can help offer a new window, a new perspective into this world of philanthropy. And so with that, June, thank you so much uh, to the race community here. Brent signing off with June Bradham, principal at CDM, aka Change, Develop, Move. Thank you, June. Take care. Thank
1: you so much. Bye-bye.